Greetings and welcome. I'm Paul McLean. And I'm Helen McLean. And we're back with Poirot Greatest Detective. In today's show, we'll be exploring... Four and Twenty Blackbirds. Woohoo! Episode four. We're here already. (laughs) Uh, It was first published in April 1926 in the US in the Mystery Magazine when it was called Poirot and the Regular Customer. Mm. And interestingly, it didn't appear in a UK publication until 1941 in the Strand Magazine. Wow, so it took 15 years for it to cross the Atlantic. Yeah. Wow. Quite interesting why that happened. Yeah, I I didn't know that. I mean, the air date for the episode for ITV's Agatha Christie's Borrow is the 29th of January, 1989. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's one of those batch. It's the first batch that was recorded in July, 1988, previous year. And this time we're actually back on track in sync with recording sequence Mm -hmm. and also broadcast sequence. So this is the fourth recorded and this time the fourth actually shown on TV. Now David Suchet in his book Poirot and Me, heartily recommended. It's a great read. I love this book. It's great. Has this to say regarding Four and Twenty Blackbirds. No sooner had we finished Murder in the Muse than we were on to the next Four and Twenty Blackbirds. There was hardly a moment for me to do anything except to go to Twickenham and work. That meant I had to leave home every morning at 6.30am and I often didn't get back to Pinner in North London until 8.30 or 9pm. I'm afraid that meant that Sheila and the children did not see a great deal of me in the months between July and Christmas 1988 because even when I did get home I had to look at the script for the next day. I eventually got into the habit of making sure that I learnt my lines at least two weeks ahead to overcome the panic of trying to learn them the night before. Gosh. That seems quite sensible. (laughs) (laughs) Quite intense. There we go. So learn them two weeks ahead. It makes for a better time overall. (laughs) Right. Should we get on with the plot? Yeah. The Plot. The episode starts with Mr Anthony Gascoigne's deathbed. George Lorimer, his nephew, is contacted while he's at work at the theatre. The scene then cuts to Whitehaven Mansions where Hastings is listening to the cricket and this is something we're going to see throughout the episode. A common theme. As he follows um, the test match. Uh, Poirot's really not interested and slightly disgusted by this but it doesn't matter because he's on his way out for dinner with his dentist. Doesn't everyone? I have a dinner engagement with my dentist. Your dentist? Positively morbid. But you're always trying to avoid him. Not at all. Off duty, he's quite charming. Besides, he likes to see the end product at work. Keep your dentist close. (laughs) While there, their waitress tells them of another customer who had ordered food he normally wouldn't and had also come on a day he normally wouldn't and this had greatly surprised her. Um, This man was a painter called Henry Gascoigne. A couple of days later Henry's body is discovered and when Poirot hears of this from his dentist his suspicions are aroused because of the unusualness of the um, food order. He and Hastings visit Henry's house and meet his life model. Poirot takes an interest in some ink in the studio and Dulcie Lang, the model, um, tells them about his brother, who he'd fallen out with, his nephew and his agent. 
Poirot visits Jap in the new forensic lab and he tells him that there is no case. And then Poirot goes on to see the pathologist um, after Jap gives him the name um, who lets Poirot have a letter that was found in George's pocket which helped with the time of death. After meeting with Henry's agent, and they track down his nephew at Anthony Gascoigne's funeral. Anthony's housekeeper reveals that there was no will, so all of the money would go to the family, now George Lorimer. Poirot and Hastings retrace the walk from Henry's house to the restaurant and in a gent's lavatory find the clothes Henry was seen in on Saturday in the hands of the toilet attendant. The final confrontation takes place in George Lorimer's theatre, where he is revealed as the murderer. He had murdered his uncle, then disguised himself as Henry to eat out, and he'd forged the date on the letter because he needed Henry to have died before Anthony so that he would inherit. The episode ends with Poirot, Hastings and Jap, and the dentist of course, eating at the restaurant where Poirot amazes them all with his cricket knowledge. He's become such an expert in cricket. <laughs> of course, Poirot, of course. I think Poirot can become a, uh, an expert in anything if he puts his mind to it. And that's demonstrated right here. It's a, it's a good yeah. example. Mm-hmm. He Absolutely. will learn it and he will demonstrate his mastery yeah. of any subject <laughs> that he needs to. I mean, he is, he is seen a couple of times later on in the episode when listening to the cricket on the radio that as if he's paying attention. He starts to nod. Yes, like, oh, oh, he's starting to yeah. take some of this on board. <laughs> yeah. Right, interesting episode. As mm. far as I... Uh, I think it's actually set in Brighton. Is that correct? The, the, the some of the, it some is. Of it. That's where... Um, uh, get the right Gascoigne. Anthony Gascoigne lived. So, so some of it's in Brighton, some of it's in London. Yeah, so that's south coast of the UK. Yeah, and I think it was actually filmed as far as in Brighton as well. Mm-hmm. So they're actually filming in the same location as the actual yeah. story is set, which is far from the case yeah. most of the time. Yeah. So it's nice to see that kind of period background. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm trying to think what what oh. I've got loads and loads of notes of various different things, and I'm now trying to remember the chronological sequence. <laughs> Did you not write them in order? Probably <laughs> not. I wrote mine in order well, as the episode went. Well, I've got Bishop's Chop House written near the mm. top of mine. Yes, that's where, the restaurant where they yeah. they see get told about um, Henry Gascoigne's unusual food order. Exactly, where Poirot has taken his dentist. Mm. Poirot is still having a bit of a problem with his left bicuspid. Mm-hmm. It's playing up. To my good friend, Hercule Poirot, for whom life without mystery would be like roast beef without the mustard. <laughs> C'est la vérité, mon ami. Ah, I see that bicuspid is still sensitive, Poirot. We must take a look at that. Your dentist to dinner? Keep on the good side, <laughs> going into your mouth. You want to keep them close. Now, Bishop's Chop House doesn't exist. What it actually is, is Simpson's Tavern, which is a real place that, uh, I think it opened in something like 1757. It's in the city of London. I have a feeling it's closed now, though. Well, it has. I mean, it's actually located not far from the Royal Exchange, which itself is very close to the Bank of England Mm -hmm. on Threadneedle Street. But as of October 2022, it's closed because apparently there's some contention over rental arrears with the landlord during the pandemic. Okay. But they're fighting against this because it was right. closed the wrong way. So that, And apparently Simpson's Tavern has won its first round of appeal. 
though it's still currently closed. But it's been going for because it, it was one years. of a number of chop houses, like the one that's shown in the in the episode, the fictional bishop's chop house, which was designed for, you know, the the men who worked in the bank, so that if they were in town, they had somewhere they could go and get a hearty meal. Yeah, essentially. Absolutely. It, it looks jolly nice, because yeah. I was going to say, maybe we should go on one of our Poirot <laughs> pilgrimages that we have every so often and go to Simpson's yeah. Tavern. But we can't right now, Not because moment, it no. closed about six months ago. But you can, you can see in the, at the end of the episode when they go there, you can see the name Simpson's above yes, the door. Yes, it's actually left yeah. in, because it says, hang on, it actually has the original name uh, yeah. in the final scene where they're back at the chop house. Yeah. Um, this episode is one that they've really had to bulk out, and I think they've done quite well. Because in the short story, it's well, it's Poirot's not out with his dentist, it's just a friend. It's a friend that I don't think is ever <laughs> mentioned again. And you know, his interest gets piqued in this, and then he bumps into his friend on the tube of all places. I can't really imagine Poirot on the tube. Oh, I think, yeah, he's quite urbane. <laughs> I don't know, but it was the way it was described as hanging on the straps. I just can't picture it. <laughs> You'd think he'd sit down at the very least. Well, there was no seats. They complain about oh. it in the story. And then from that, he hears that the, the man's been found dead. And, and then it's one of those cases where Poirot goes, something's not right here, even though nobody else thinks there's been a crime. Mm. And he just takes it upon himself to investigate, as he does in the in the TV episode. I mean, that's the thing about Poirot. It's not just that he will take... I mean, this is demonstrated really early on, even the previous three episodes. Is it's not he'll just take any job for money because yeah. he's he's got lots of money even even by this point, mm-hmm. and you know he will take a job that interests him that he finds intriguing something that has a character to it yeah. that he wants to investigate whether that's paid or not mm-hmm. though he will actually give people a bill at the end as necessary <laughs> as we found out with yeah. Johnny Waverley. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I found odd about both the short story and this episode is about blackberries which is partly why the episode's called four and twenty blackbirds ah. like the blackberries oh, because mr gascoigne is described as having a blackberry tart or blackberry pie or something and poirot gets a bit obsessed about that it would be visible on his teeth mm. so when he's found dead his teeth are unstained but he could have brushed his teeth well do you think the whole teeth know. thing the dental thing is because he is going out with the dentist so to speak so maybe <laughs> but he's not in the short story no. so <laughs> i don't i don't maybe know maybe he just wrote that in to say something with the teeth because we've got the dentist in here for whatever reason well as i said it's it's talks about the blackberries and yeah. the teeth in the short story and there's mm. no dentist so interesting i don't know it's, it's that that sort of is one of the alarm bells for poirot that this guy's teeth aren't stained with Blackberries. I mean, nowadays they could do stomach contents and tell you exactly what you'd eaten. Well, this is an interesting point because there is a, a scene where Poirot goes and sees Jap and mm-hmm. they're actually in a new forensic yeah. laboratory mm-hmm. where Jap essentially says how this is the future. Mm. This is where the future of criminal investigation lies. Our new forensic division, the most advanced in the world. Won't be long before the likes of you and me will be gone forever. Cast onto the scrap heap of life like so much scrap. I mean, that's it. Forensics are going to make these people dinosaurs, essentially. Not necessarily true, as we find out. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, if you consider how forensic science has come on in the past century 
Absolutely. So it's entirely possible at that point they wouldn't be able to tell the food because they did talk about how he'd had a light meal, which doesn't match what he'd ordered in the restaurant because yeah. it wasn't him. <laughs> I mean, this is also a case, I think, of Chekhov's forensic lab. Mm. And it's like, well, why, why in storytelling, because <laughs> you have to be so efficient usually, yeah. why would you include this piece about the forensic lab mm. if it isn't going to feature later on yeah and of course it does yeah so they have all the forensics team on the stage at the end for the confrontation <laughs> which seems a bit excessive i thought but... i thought i mean jap has a lot of pull yeah you know he can get 11 other officers to go out and stop her kidnapping well yeah um you know boom off you go including sergeants and and or he can say right the entire forensics lab out of the office you're coming with me into <laughs> Into a local theatre, in which case the theatre—I mean, the theatre in question—is ostensibly George Latimer's Carlton Theatre in Bethnal Green, mm-hmm. but actually, it's the Hackney Empire mm. Theatre is where those actual scenes were shot. Yeah, yeah and they—they they use that theatre quite a bit, so that Poirot watches one of the actors pretending to be an old man on stage, and then obviously not being an old man off stage, um, and that clearly helps with the little grey cells and helps with his thinking. I mean, harking back again to the original scene at Bishop's Chop House near the start, where they they see the gentleman Mm. in question that arouses Poirot's suspicion, the makeup department have done that great job once again of putting on false makeup really well Badly, so to speak. <laughs> so it looks obvious the guy is wearing a false yeah, outfit yeah. to us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had this <laughs> encounter before. And they've done a really good job of making it an, a really professional, obvious-looking fake. Yeah. But then carrying on. So I thought, mm-hmm. oh, so that's kind of well yeah, done. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing in this uh, episode that sort of is, I've just written down in my notes, Poirot cooks. Yes. Rabbit Aliège. Yeah. When he cooks for Hastings. No, 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 Hastings. Use your spoon. That is the Liège way. To use the knife is an insult to the cook. It implies the meaty stuff. You're not eating? I unfortunately know my left by Caspid is still causing me that considerable discomfort. I'm not entirely sure why that scene's there, but other than it just as to their relationship, because Poirot doesn't eat any of it, because no. he's still having trouble with his left by cuspid. Indeed Hence is. why he then goes to the dentist the next day and finds I, out that this guy's dead. And some superb acting there by Hugh Fraser yeah. as Captain Hastings, where he's trying to pretend to like it. Yeah, and he makes this great quote. Is it good, Hastings? Please, do not be stinting with your praise. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, tastes more, um, well, um, rabbity than any rabbit I've ever tasted. The way Poirot was just hovering yeah. over him. The other thing I found quite interested in this episode is when they go to visit Dulcie Lang while she's doing some life modelling, because they're up on a gallery and Poirot's having a good look down and Hastings actually sort of tells him off. Oh, because she's a... Uh, she's life modelling. She's a life modelling. She's modeling. not wearing anything. And they've got a very interesting vantage point from, yeah. a, from an upper level. Yeah, and and I would have thought it more the other way around, that well, Hastings was more likely to be taking an interest. It's because Poirot is a great appreciator of art. <laughs> yes. That is why. Okay. It would certainly take a long stretch of the imagination to see Miss Dulcie Lane in the white wig and the whiskers. Steady, Poirot. And that was shot at University College London, oh, actually. Okay, fair enough. 
Yeah, and then later on, I think uh, Hastings gives a couple of looks to Poirot when he's doing some of his investigation, and he's you know he pulls him up for pretending he was uh, uh, interested in drawing and and creating art, and <laughs> when he's talking to George Lorimer the first time. Now, there's a couple of scenes. I mean, on this one. I think you're right, there's not much to the story mm. um, and they kind of padded it out. And then following the order, I'm, and I'm jumping around various yeah, observations okay. in this, which is, I think is kind of okay in this. Uh, and the two points that come up following that after Poirot's uh, rabbit meal is the uh, a very nice art gallery they go mm-hmm. to to deal with the artist in question's work where they say, oh, we, we never sold the oil paintings, but now yeah. he's dead. All these suspects come out because they could make well. It gives the, it gives motive, doesn't it? That's right. Now, I'll, I'll save. I recognise that chat for later, okay. but there, there start to be people I start to recognise, and only some of those because I am really quite old. Okay, and that's the only reason I <laughs> recognise them. But um, there is also the part one. We see Poirot's business card. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in lowish DVD resolution, yeah. so you can't quite read it, but you can actually see Poirot's business card. And they get a taxi back to Whitehaven mm. Mansions. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, the taxi that drops them off has the license plate ALE165, mm. AL165. We thought, that's that jolly familiar. familiar. It's yeah. because that taxi appeared in the Clapham Cook in the very first Poirot episode. Did. So, I mean, there's nothing suspicious about that. No. He's just got the same, quote, the same taxi because it's in the same rounds. But it's like, yeah, we've got to use this. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, they're using that like an old car for mm-hmm. that basis. So we're seeing it again. We are spotting it as we watch yeah. it through. I mean, one of the other key changes from the short story is George Lorimer's occupation because mm. in the short story he's actually a doctor and they've obviously put him into the theatre to give him that idea of how he would be able to get the right equipment to disguise himself and to maybe even have that idea. And and the whole thing of this story that it hinges on is the timing, is because his uncle um, Anthony doesn't have a will, it would mean everything would automatically go to his twin brother, and presumably then Henry would have his own will, which wouldn't necessarily favour his nephew. Which is why the timings of the deaths yeah, were Yeah, so important. he needed Henry to be seen to have died first so that the next of kin for Anthony is George, so that George inherits. Got to kill them in the right sequence. Yes. <laughs> got, to die, got to die in the right sequence. <laughs> Lots of timetable yeah, juggling there. because Anthony is dying of natural causes. He's been very ill for a long time and there's nothing more that can be done. So, yeah, he had to get that. Can we just talk about cricket for a bit? Yeah. In our new cricket podcast that we're going to be doing. But cricket is a running theme Mm. through this particular episode. How does that reflect in the original short story? Uh, Absolutely no mention of cricket. Well, Hastings isn't in it, so... so... So cricket, for whatever reason has been inserted yeah, into this like episode. Yeah, theme throughout. And, yeah, because Hastings quite often buys a newspaper or spots something on it or, you know, gets distracted by cricket news um, throughout this episode. And I think that's just one of those bits of colour and sort of developing the, the Poirot family, I guess. Mm. For this TV episode, uh, the writer, it was dramatised actually by Russell Murray. So we have a different. So whether Russell Murray quite likes cricket mm. or somebody suggested we need something else in there for a kind of thread yes. to have Hastings latch onto mm. it 
and, and discuss. Like he had his car in the last episode. Yes, you know, because they've got that group together. Maybe that, yeah. I don't know. But I, I did want to check whether it was in there or not. It's interesting you say it's not, because one of the other pieces of trivia is that uh, when listening to the cricket matches on the radio, the cricket match is actually England versus Australia, and that was a real cricket match mm. that's actually being described on the radio. So it's quite accurate. So that was the second test of the 1934 Ashes Tour, played, well, basically between the 22nd and 25th of mm. June. So they've actually kind of recreated that for that yeah. kind of historical mm-hmm. accuracy, which is nice. I always like it's it when nice you try... nice little and, bit of flavour. Yeah, yeah, especially when it's it, it, they try to be accurate because mm-hmm. that's the thing about i think uh, fiction the closer it can cling to the to the truth to historical yeah. fact it's easier then for it to slightly break away into the fantasy mm-hmm. it's more believable if the yeah. rest of it is true makes sense because that's that can be the thing isn't it if you're reading something and something's factually inaccurate that might be the thing that breaks you rather than the implausible dragons or yeah whatever. or murder yeah. or technique or, or motive or whatever but sometimes you can you know it's what my mum always calls the willing suspension of disbelief yeah. and you get taken out of that by <laughs> some other random thing that just makes no sense that's why i say the best way to sell a lie is to wrap it in a load of truth mm-hmm. isn't it so yeah. there we go so i like the fact that they they have those little points of historical accuracy so actually in theory this would date the episode to 1934 keeping that in mind except aren't they all supposed to be set in like 1936 well a a flexible period in mid to late but (laughs) it may have been later it's like it's yeah yeah i think you just have to not even really worry but we do (laughs) (laughs) but we do uh we try to be oh it's like why why does this not marry up why does it not match and it's it's like um it's like looking at Whitehaven Mansions, which is a kind of little hobby of mine now for some reason. <laughs> Even going on the internet and trying to find floor plans of what it's... But it doesn't fit because, the t- you know... But they have some close-up shots mm. of the exterior of Whitehaven Mansions in this particular episode. And in this case, they are showing the left-hand side of the building. Yeah. So in Poirot and Me by David Suchet, he says that 56B is actually on the fifth floor. So he said, well, OK, and so in theory... What we're looking at is is the corner, is the rounded corner on the left-hand side of Whitehaven Mansions, Florin Court, mm-hmm. on the fifth floor. That should be where Poirot lives. Mm-hmm. And we tried to count the floors, but we couldn't see the ground floor no. to ascertain whether it actually was the fifth floor. But we're taking David Suchet, who really ought to know yeah. where that's the, the case. So it's kind of identifying exactly where in Florin Court... Poirot lives, so sorry, fifth floor on the left-hand side on that curved bit on the left, yeah. and then which is completely different from the floor plans of what's actually inside Florin Court mm-hmm. versus the studio yeah. version. You might, I haven't looked actually, but there, there are a number of fictional famous addresses like the flats in Friends, like Fraser's apartment, that people have actually plotted out and mapped like a proper floor plan. Yeah, So then it, yeah. it may exist that somebody's sort of mapped Poirot's Oh, they have. Flat. I mean, they've created it. Oh, but there's, they? there's multiple okay. different versions. And this is something we said yeah. last time. It's like we, we investigate on the internet lots of different sources mm. and they don't always agree. Some of them are contradictory. Some of them are not clear whether it actually is a development of time from one to the other. Because well, his apartment, no, no one's bothered to pull that to be His apartment really. changes quite a lot. It's much bigger later on. It is. It? When there's a change in production team, mm. 
when the rights are sold to a different production company who decide to t- make Poirot more cinematic, mm-hmm. more epic, which is when you're seeing the little Poirot family kind of put to the side mm. somewhat with Jap and Hastings and Miss Lemon, then when that happens, they also massively kind of upgrade Poirot's apartment. Mm. And the new one looks absolutely gorgeous, <laughs> drop-dead gorgeous Art Deco. BBC Online has photographs of what that was like they did a feature on it at the end of the series in 2013. Even BBC? Yeah, the BBC. Yeah, yeah, BBC okay. actually did a piece on it. I mean, you know, fair credit to them. Yeah. It's an epic series that went on for a quarter of a century. It's a mm-hmm. big thing. Uh, and you can see the insides of this fantastic Art Deco apartment that has a serious upgrade from what you're seeing of Poirot's place yeah. in the first series. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah, we're going to have to buy an entire floor <laughs> just of to flooring court, it. knock it all through, just to recreate. <laughs> we're going to do a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe. Are we? If we can raise about ten million pounds, we <laughs> can buy do, we can all do these this. people from their we, flats. Yeah, we can do this. <laughs> we can recreate Poirot. It just takes money <laughs> and chucking some people out of their house. Yeah, then mind besides that. <sighs> yes, it may be a hobby. Okay. <laughs> Coming soon to Kickstarter. GoFundMe, Indiegogo, or whatever we can get the cash. It's fine. Huge Patreon. Huge, I tell you. Right, okay. And then we can podcast from the flat where Poirot is supposed to live. How great would that be? I'm going well off into my own fantasy. You really are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Should we pull it back? I think okay. We should move on now. Right. <laughs> Anything else on that episode you wanted to raise? Um, just going back to Bishop's Chop House, I think it's nice they had that kind of end scene and mm. then the culmination of that. And, you know, because the dentist is back there again. Yeah. And Never to be seen again. <laughs> <laughs> Once he's fixed the teeth, it's fine. That left by cuspid has been sorted. And then we have that bit where Poirot shows his newfound expertise mm. in cricket. In fact, he's just a little bit of that. Australians are used to hard pitches. The Lord's wickets would have been decidedly sticky, no? So it's not a day for the stroke play? No, it's a day for the art of spin bowling. And Hedley Verite is the greatest exponent alive. Bowling left arm, the leg breakers to the right-handers. He would have them marching through the long room in no time. eh? He has flight variation, the Chinaman. And the most deadly quicker ball that dips into a yorker. Oh, yes. On such a day, Monsieur Verite would consider, what, 14 for 70? A fair hole. He knows his stuff. Instant expert. Well, think of the golf. Think of the golf. Yeah. He's actually more of a sportsman than you might expect. Because <laughs> you apply the little grey cells to yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So that works really well. So I, I enjoyed this episode. Mm. I thought it, it was a yeah, good one. Yeah, And I thought the changes they made really worked in this one because... You needed them because it was so light on characters. You know, half the characters that were in the episode just aren't in the in the short story at all. Yeah. You know, there's there's no agent, there's no model. I think the housekeeper's in it, but only very briefly. So, yeah. But what made me laugh is when they got the entire police forensics lab for London to go to a theatre, <laughs> yeah. set everything up so they could have their denouement of a revealing of the you know yeah, who, yeah. who killed whom. And, and then Poirot takes out a piece of paper from the typewriter mm. to show about the typeface. And in the background, you've got one of the guys in white lab coats <laughs> with a magnifying glass dedicatedly peering at the keyboard, <laughs> the you know, typewriter keys, like... What are you looking for? Just look busy in the background while he dramatically whips out the paper. Oh, that did make me laugh. Anyway, we should move on because time is running short. And we have, of course... I recognise that chap. 
The only person I recognised is the guy who's credited as lavatory attendant, who, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he played Jim Branning on EastEnders. Oh, John Barden. It was John Barden who was married to Doc Cotton. Yeah. And he's the only person that I recognised because he was in EastEnders for a number of years. Yeah, I noticed him too. Um, One of the invisible people I spotted was John Sessions, Mm -hmm. who you never see because he's doing the radio voiceovers. Of course, John Sessions is a famous British impersonator and comedian. Mm -hmm. This is late 1980s. He's big then as well. So he's doing all the bit with raffles on the radio where there's the quote like, oh, he's such dashing, so handsome. (laughs) Well, Poirot's going, what about me? The other one I remembered, and I couldn't quite place him to begin with because it was a long time ago, and that was Clifford Rose, who played Peter Makinson, the, uh, the, the agent? art agent for Gascoigne. Yeah. Now, I thought, I tried to place where he was, and then I remembered what he was. He was Sturmbaumführer Ludwig Kessler. Obviously. Sturmbaumführer Ludwig Kessler in the BBC's um, Secret Army. TV series from 1977 and I remember watching that at the time so I'd be like nine or ten years yeah. old it is an absolutely corking series if you can watch Secret Army okay that was the year I was born so yeah <laughs> I don't know <laughs> uh, brilliant so there he is yeah. a Clifford I mean again there. it's a lot of actors and actresses who've yeah. just been in lots of British TV over the years and we're only on episode four I know right I think it's tally time good heavens Okay, so this one was quite interesting because little grey cells were mentioned twice. Once by Jap in reference to Poirot and the second time was by Poirot but not to his own little grey cells but to Hastings. Oh. That was the count on that. And Hastings didn't really give uh, an ejaculation, if that's what we're going to call it. Hastings ejaculations, e- episode. yeah. Episode. I um, say, good heavens. Apart the closest he came was when Poirot was looking at the life model and he just went steady on Poirot. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> but that... moustache twizzling there. That that was it. <laughs> yeah. So a bit, well, a, few. a bit low yeah. on that count. But overall, it is generally ticking... Well, it is going to tick upwards. You know, yeah. it's getting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think... Oh, I'm jumping ahead to the conclusion. Oh, should we conclude? Yeah. So we may conclude... So one of the things in here, I think we saw a little bit more development of the Poirot family, particularly the relationship between Hastings and Poirot that mm. continues to sort of develop where... with Actually, Hastings being a little bit disapproving of Poirot in a couple of instances. I think there's probably more balance between yeah, the two that many yeah. people give them credit yeah. for. Um, Miss Lemon was a bit light, wasn't really very much about her... In this episode. I mean, again, it's at the mercy of the uh, the writer, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Jap, I can't... On, even, as we said, <laughs> even though I've watched it at least twice through before, I can't remember if this changes, but in this episode, he just tells Porter there isn't a case. What are you looking into it for? Mm-hmm. And you'd think he'd get to a point where he'd start trusting Poirot's instincts, that if Poirot says there's a case, there's probably a case. <laughs> Um, but I don't know if he's just looking at his closeout stats. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's still reminding me of that kind of Sherlock Holmes and Lestrade, mm. Inspector Lestrade kind of dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think this also goes on throughout the Poirot series, as it does with Sherlock Holmes, mm. is that 
there there is a, a growing respect yeah. between the two. They mm-hmm. obviously knew each other very well, as we said from the very first yeah, episode. Yeah. But I, I think as the time goes on, they become even better friends. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you've got to consider Jap is pulling out 11 policemen oh, from London yeah, up yeah. in a van because... Of All the forensics team on stage. Yeah, they, they didn't. <laughs> so even though Jap says, oh, no, no, it's a waste of time, yeah. he actually does end up doing what Poirot requests, mm. despite that. Yeah. So there is that kind mm-hmm. of admiration already there, and that just grows throughout the, the yeah, series yeah. and the episodes as mm-hmm. they go on, which yeah. is lovely to see. Yeah. I mean, they work so well. This is the fourth one recorded, mm. and already they're very much gelling in place, both with characters and as actors, I think. Yeah. So it's doing really well. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I liked the period yeah. seaside shots they yeah, set in Brighton. Nice it was all nicely done. yeah. Uh, some of the art galleries look fantastic, mm-hmm. so very avant-garde in some cases. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a good episode, I thought. Yeah, totally agree. So next time we'll be looking at the third floor flat. Ooh, it's been a long time since I've seen that. Very mm-hmm. much looking forward yeah. to it. Don't forget to check out greatestdetective.com for more information and our usual... We forgot to say, or yes. we got this wrong. Or... Well, every every episode we do also appears as a playable thing on greatestdetective.com. So if you're not listening to the podcast as a podcast stream, you can go to greatestdetective.com, find the entry for this particular episode, you can play that. And then if we find any other errata going on, uh, we'll add it to the comments. Yeah, or, any, or, or any other information yeah, we've gleaned. Exactly. Or... And if you want to add it as well, you can just post a reply in there mm-hmm. and update us. Tell us where we went wrong. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. This is a hobby podcast. We're not trying to... Well, we're trying to be accurate, but we, yeah. we sometimes fail. Mm-hmm. So we do appreciate trying to get things as right as we can. Yeah. Okay. So thank you very much for listening. Yeah. Until and next time, Until next time. Au revoir, mes amis. Au revoir. Thin King Productions. <laughs>